Captain Brain, how did you first become interested in flying? Uh, after I left school, I joined the uh, Commercial Banking Company of Sydney in Sydney. Um, but that wasn't my natural background. My father was a, an engineer, a mining engineer. He came to Australia as a mine manager, and all my forebears on that side were all engineers. There were no bankers, lawyers, or school teachers, and so I think I had engineering in my blood from the word go. And uh, in the bank, I felt that it wasn't my cup of tea, and that uh, I happened to notice an advertisement in 1922 calling for cadetships in the Royal Australian Air Force for young men to learn to fly, uh, to get their pilot's wings and uh, their commission and be available to the Air Force for the next six years. Um, this appealed to me enormously, so I applied together with 700 others. There were four vacancies, and I was fortunate that I was one of the four cadets Actually, they, they finished up taking five to allow for scrubbings, and they scrubbed one during the year, so there were four of us uh, cadets. And that was number one flying, uh, number one cadet course at Point Cook. What was the training like those days? Well, uh, I think very much as everyone imagines it. We um, did our elementary flying training on uh, the 504K Avros with the rotary engines, uh, Lerone and Clergy rotary engines, um, and then after about six months on that, um, those aircraft, we moved on to um, service types, uh, the DH-9 and the DH-9A. Now, shortly after this, you joined Qantas. What, what were the events that led up to you joining the organisation? Well, by, um, by January 1924... I uh, I graduated, I'd got my Air Force wings and uh, my uh, commission on the reserve and I felt that I I didn't want to uh, stay in the Air Force in peacetime, that uh, all I wanted was if a war happened that I'd be in the Air Force and not the, uh, not the Army. And um, I felt that uh, I, uh, having got my commission and my wings in the Air Force, that I'd be one of the first in if there were a war. In the meantime, I'd rather go and fly. And uh, my ambition was to try and obtain a job in the infant civil aviation industry. So um, since I'd uh, actually uh, topped the cadet course, uh, a vacancy with Qantas occurred, and um, the managing director at the time, Hudson Fish, uh, got in touch with the controller of civil aviation, Colonel Brinsmead, and um, in the circumstances he suggested that uh, that I should be offered the job. So in uh, April 1924, I uh, uh, went up to um, Longreach and uh, joined Qantas. Um, at that time, they uh, they operated uh, two... Their main fleet consisted of two DH-9Cs, which were conversions of the surplus DH-9s from World War One, Single-engine open cockpit, the passengers all wore cap and goggles, as well as the pilot. And um, since it was in quite early days, um, and the conditions in Western Queensland, extreme heat in the tropics, uh, they found that performance was poor. I don't think we really understood much about density altitude in those days, but we did know that uh, flying conditions after the heat of the day was really up were most difficult. 
and they only flew in the mornings. They'd um, commenced their flight from Charleville, which was 260 miles from uh, uh, from uh, Longreach, and they made two intermediate stops, one at Tambo, one at Blackall, and then Longreach, so that uh, you did it in uh, three stages, the 260 miles. Got to Longreach by half past 11, and the aeroplane was put away in the hangar until the next morning, and the passengers accommodated at the hotel, and those going on to Cloncurry, well, they went on next morning at crack of dawn um, through to Cloncurry, and um, that's the way it was then. A few months later, they decided that they felt they had enough confidence to be able to fly through in the day and uh, take the, the heat and the more difficult conditions. Now, when you joined Qantas... Uh, two of the three founder members were still working for the organisation. How did you find them? Um, the um, Qantas was originally formed of, uh, with uh, two pilots, uh, Captain Gindy McGuinness and um, Lieutenant uh, Hudson Fish and an engineer, Arthur Baird. Uh, by the time I got there, Gindy McGuinness, who was the more experienced and senior pilot originally, had, uh, like so many World War I people, uh, he was more or less of a rolling stone and adventurer, and uh, once they'd got to the stage of getting a government contract and running a civil airline, he lost interest and meandered off. And Hudson Fish uh, was a managing director uh, when I arrived, and uh, uh, the pilot's strength was two, myself and uh, uh, Captain Percy Moody, who is still alive, incidentally, aged 82, living up on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Um, I might mention that uh, Qantas had been actually operating uh, regular scheduled airlines uh, at that time since November 1922, um, so that they'd been going about 16 months. Now, in the time before I arrived, apart from Hudson Fish, uh, they'd uh, had... Uh, some five or six pilots previously, uh, and it's indicative of those times, post-war one, that not one of those pilots remained longer than six months before they wandered off onto something else. Uh, Percy Moody and I joined within a fortnight of each other. He stayed with one broken period for about ten years, nine or ten years. I stayed for 22 years. Um... Also, my uh, flying experience when I joined Qantas was a total of 127 hours, including dual instruction, which, uh, when you consider it with these days, would well, nobody be appointed captain of an airline like that under 5,000 hours of flying experience. But that's the way it was. Um, I took over from a uh, very experienced, uh, distinguished, uh, World War I fighter pilot, uh, Widge Vigers, V-I-G-E-R-S. But um, Widge Vigers was typical of the type at the time. He'd been there six months. And um, he, uh, since we only flew two days a week, in the intervening days he he'd, uh, was apt to go and uh, uh, tipple his elbow at the bar and the public, it seemed, and they took a very dim view of that and uh, wouldn't let their children or themselves perhaps fly with him. And so within a few weeks of arriving when he'd departed and I took over, I found that people travelled with me and told me, well, they wouldn't fly before because they'd seen the bloke drinking in the hotel and 
And this was quite unfair because Vegas was the type that he knew when he had to fly again. It was Friday morning. Well, uh, for the 24 hours before he flew, he wouldn't touch it. Uh, he'd go out with his gun shooting wallabies round the hills. But uh, it just showed you that at that time, flying was such a novelty that uh, that the uh, passengers insisted on having confidence in the individual pilot. And uh, if he wasn't available, there were occasions on record when a passenger booked and come out and say, where's Captain so-and-so? And, oh, no, he's not there. We've got a pilot whose name they didn't know, and they just take their bags off and go back to their hotel. You must have had some very interesting uh, characters amongst your passengers those days. Can you recall any of them? Uh, well, <clears throat> generally speaking, you see, it was so early that anybody who who uh, travelled uh, was greeted as quite a hero by all their associates. It was uh, considered a very brave thing to do, was to fly, and <clears throat> all the staff voluntarily, uh, naturally, acted as public relations uh, officers for this uh, fledgling airline and uh, tried to behave well and create a good impression with everybody and... Uh, encourage them to, well, why not fly? Look, it's, there's nothing to it, and it's easy. But um, some of them, of course, had... Uh, I remember once in Longreach, one morning, uh, one passenger was booked to come with me from Longreach up to Cloncurry, and he, he, he'd never seen an aeroplane on the ground. He'd rung in and booked because he wanted to go there, and uh, he stood around, and uh, we had the aircraft, the old DH-9 out, and uh, the engine started, and... Uh, uh, presently, after a bit of shuffling around, he sidled up to me. He said, uh, <coughs> look, t t tell me, he didn't want to be overheard, uh, tell me which end goes up first, because quite obviously in his mind, in a ship, the propeller was always at the rear. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was that. Um, I found that um, the, uh, the best passengers uh, were very aged people. They never got airsick. Um, and babies in arms. And the worst passengers were young women and um, children older than babies who... Um, the conditions were rough. We had to fly low, and uh, in the heat out there, the bumps and that were as severe as anywhere in the world. And um, a lot of them did get airsick. And since the captain was the sole member of the crew... Well, uh, his job included, um, uh, you know, cleaning up at each stop and and uh, uh, getting the thing respectable for to fly on to the next hop. Uh, the stages on the route at the time were uh, varied between 62 and uh, and 101 miles. Uh, they were all relatively short stages, but the the schedule was uh, scheduled on a, a speed of 70 miles an hour. So um, uh, that was that. And, of course, uh, one learned very quickly that if one happened to strike strong uh, headwinds of 35 miles an hour, which is not excessive, well, you, you, your speed was reduced to half uh, there and then, which uh, seems rather funny today, of course, because 35 miles an hour headwind when your scheduled speed is five or 600 miles an hour is a, a relative flea-by. What um, sort of people could afford to fly? Oh, well... Everybody, really. Um, you see, the the way in which Qantas started and the route was formed uh, in western Queensland, because we had railway lines running north and south right up the coast from Brisbane to Cairns, 
And then there were three main railway lines that went out west into the country, one from Brisbane out to Charleville, one from Rockhampton out to Longreach and Blackall, and one from Townsville, which went, went west to Cloncurry and Winton. And uh, anybody who wanted to go from Charleville to Winton or Charleville or Longreach to Cloncurry had to take 450-mile rail journey down to the coast, 300 miles up the coast to Townsville, and another 450 miles out west from Townsville to get to Cloncurry. And um, uh, since the roads were unmade roads and were impassable in wet weather, well, that was the only way of getting there. So the concept of that route was to join up the, the heads of these railways and provide a direct link across the extremities of the railways that linked those three main systems up. Um, now, the people who travelled were, uh, in some cases, a, a stockman, uh, a drover, uh, and uh, it was interesting that when he came along with his baggage, uh, there was no suitcases and things, it was his saddle and his dog. Uh, he'd want to carry the dog under the seat with him, which we allowed him to do. But uh, th those were uh, a drover's two pet possessions, were his saddle and, the, and his dog. Um, then, um, shortly after we started, the Mount Isa silver lead fields were first discovered, and this produced a, quite a, a bit of traffic with uh, financial and technical mining people uh, wanting to get up to Cloncurry. There was no aerodrome at Mount Isa at the time, but uh, these people had to come and go. Um, uh, then a lot of the people living in the outback, uh, station people on property, sheep properties, well, if they wanted to go down to Brisbane instead of a three or four day rail journey, they were prepared to fly down, They could, most of them could afford to do it in those days, and also those people, their children, uh, they, uh, since they were so isolated, they usually put their children to boarding schools, say at Toowoomba or Brisbane, and at school holidays the, uh, they'd get their children flown, flown back for their holidays at home. Um, and uh, the pilot, among his many, many jobs, was to look after kids. I remember taking children up to go, returning for school holidays to their parents in Cloncurry, and well, I'd look after them like a temporary father while they spent the night at um, Longreach at the hotel and buy them comic papers and a few lollies and keep them happy and uh, see that they were collected in due course in the morning. Then on the, on the few little items of freight that we carried, there'd be all sorts of things. There'd people who'd broken their false teeth and and wanted it sent down somewhere where they could be mended. And, uh, people whose spectacles weren't right, or they'd send the, their spectacles down. Um, sometimes a local starting price bookmaker would um, want some money handed to um, uh, his uh, opposite number in another town, and we'd... Uh, He'd entrust us with the money and we'd hand it over for him to the, uh, his opposite number in another town. Captain Brain, when you joined the Qantas in April 1924, did you start flying straight away? Uh, yes, uh, to this extent that uh, none of the aircraft they had had uh, dual control and um, the introduction of a new pilot such as myself consisted of travelling as a passenger for two trips between Longreach and Cloncurry, and uh, then taking over. Now, um, the uh, 
the, the conditions of flying, the, we had no radio at all for ten years, uh, for that matter, and uh, we had no blind flying instruments at all, uh, other than just a, a compass and an airspeed indicator, which you can't call blind flying instruments, uh, so that uh, all our flying was restricted to um, visual flight, and uh, we became extremely good at that. Uh, when the dust storms were on and visibility was uh, limited to perhaps um, three or four hundred yards uh, and we'd fly at an altitude perhaps of a thousand feet with a visibility of four hundred yards well we the only way that we could find our way was by knowing intimately like the palm of our hand the country over which we flew uh, the maps were non-existent um, but you got to know every gate and fence and the layout of a homestead as you flew over it and you could recognise that instantly and know precisely where you were. In, um, in heavy rain, the same thing. Uh, I remember flying from Kainuna up towards Cloncurry on one occasion and um, I came into very heavy rain, which was the heaviest that I had experienced to that date. And uh, I finished up in pouring rain, uh, flying uh, at an altitude of less than a hundred feet, and uh, following a road which I knew, and counting the gates and the fences as I went by. And the rain was so heavy uh, that um, my forward visibility was uh, well, uh, negligible, perhaps a hundred yards, and. Uh, uh, I uh, thought, well, now, uh, my boy, uh, anything heavier than this, and, and you could not possibly fly. Uh, so when I got to Cloncurry, I made a phone call back to the place I knew, Kainuna, where this heavy rain was on, and I, I said, look, how much rain did you get? Uh, I said, I went through some very heavy rain. And they said, yes, we got an inch and a half in 25 minutes. Now, that was the in my opinion, in those days, was the maximum limit that, that even the best of pilots of those days could possibly fly in, without any, of course, blind flying instruments, as I said. Um, one of our problems, too, in the wet was the fact that uh, most of the aerodromes we landed on had uh, no runways at all. Some of them was black soil and they had a bit of consolidation with coke cinders, uh, but... Uh, some of them had none at all, and uh, the way we tested the aerodrome to see whether it was possible to take off was to uh, put an ordinary motor car or a utility car, a truck over it, and uh, if if they could uh, get up to 40 miles an hour in top gear, well, that, but that was all right, we could fly. But if they had to come down into second gear and couldn't make more than 10 miles an hour, then it was too heavy to for us. But we got cunning uh, on this by degrees, and... Uh, I think I uh, was largely responsible for some of it. And in those days, you had beaded edge tyres on Palmer cords. They were on a wire-spoked wheel, uh, and uh, they were supposed to run at a uh, be pumped up to exactly 60 pounds per square inch. But um, I found uh, by experimenting that if it came to taking off on the uh, the aerodrome was so heavy, the soil was so heavy that you just couldn't get going on that, that by letting the pressure down to 15 pounds per square inch, the tyres were half flat, 
but uh, the spread of the tire on the ground, of course, was uh, three or four times as great, and you could get off that way. And so frequently, we, uh, uh, the other pilots and I, we'd make a practice then if the uh, ground was so heavy that we'd let our tires down to 15 pounds per square inch, even though that wasn't supposed to be done. And we'd get off, and then when we got to the next airport, out had come the old uh, hand pump, and we'd pump them up to oh, the 50 or 60 pounds per square inch. Well, then uh, uh, our chief engineer, Arthur Baird, he uh, became, of course, aware of these practices, and uh, he uh, said, well, we'll get over this a bit. Well, instead of having two wheels, we'll put on four. Well, since all you had was a straight-through axle on a wooden undercarriage, and... Uh, uh, it was a hollow axle with a wheel on each side. He just put an extension on the axle and bunged another wheel on. And uh, with the four wheels on, well, this made a tremendous difference, of course, being able to take off on the heavy ground. What was the size of the Qantas fleet when you joined? Well, when I joined, uh, their two main liners were two surplus World War One DH-9s converted to carry a pilot and three passengers, the three passengers being in open cockpits and wearing cap and goggles. Uh, two of them sat behind the pilot and the, uh, in what used to be the gunner's compartment, and the third passenger sat in front of the pilot in what used to be the uh, bomb rack for the 20-pound Cooper bombs. And they had uh, little windscreens, they wore cap and goggles, which we carried, and just enough to fit the passengers. Now, they were, they were the main liners, the uh, DH-9Cs. In addition to that, as standby, we had a one DH-4 with a Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engine and uh, one Bristol fighter, which uh, had just been rebuilt with a uh, Sidley Puma engine. Uh, so they were standby for the mail route. We had, in addition, two small aircraft for charter flights during the wet weather, medical occasions and people wanting to get home urgently to their property when the roads were impassable. One of these was a 1916 vintage B2E, um, which had a maximum speed of about 65 miles an hour and a minimum speed of 50, so that you really just flew it down and it landed itself very nicely. Uh, the other was a, a 504 uh, K Avro with a toothpick, as they call it, underneath, but uh, it was unique in that uh, it had a sunbeam diet engine, a water-cooled six-in-line instead of the rotary engines that were usually fitted to the 504K Avros. Uh, that was the, the fleet uh, when I joined, and about two years later we uh, uh, got onto the DH-50, we imported one from England, and we built six in, in Longreach, uh, 500 miles inland from the coast. We imported the spruce out from Canada. We got the metal fittings and whatnot uh, from England, and uh, Arthur Baird and his chaps uh, built the aeroplanes. It was wooden three-ply and fabric, all of which they could handle, and it built it very successfully. Um, so we had then these DH-50s, first of all with the Sidley Puma engines, and then progressively with the uh, air-cooled, uh, Bristol Jupiters. Shortly after this uh, point, you were transferred to Brisbane to be branch manager and chief instructor of the Brisbane Flying School. What sort of staff did you have? Well, that came in uh, uh, the beginning of 1927. Um, the, the Havilland Moth aeroplanes had just been produced in England, and um, 
the uh, de Havilland, uh, first de Havilland moths uh, with uh, uh, Cirrus Mark I engines um, were hailed as the coming era of private ownership. Uh, Qantas became the Queensland agents for de Havilands. Um, the board decided that they would uh, open a uh, a branch office in in um, Brisbane uh, would establish there a uh, flying school. Um, at the time, the airline didn't run into Brisbane. It terminated at Charleville, and passengers went on the other 450 miles by rail, so that it was quite a detached branch. Uh, and uh, But they would establish this, and also as a sales outlet for these new moth aircraft. And... Um, the company's request, I was appointed down there to take charge of this. We built a hangar and uh, we uh, bought, uh, we got three moths up to which we used and one of which we held for sale and uh, we ran a flying school. Um, we ran it very successfully for some years. Um, the uh, Apart from flying school, dual and solo, at uh, I think it was 30 shillings uh, an hour, uh, for solo and uh, uh, £2.10 an hour for dual instruction. And uh, apart from that, well, we, uh, it was, this was the first real flying to take place in Brisbane. And uh, we did a lot of charter flying. Uh, we'd do uh, flights for the newspapers who wanted aerial photographs of some news event. Um, the, uh, we got to the stage where the doctors, the specialists particularly, in Brisbane, being called out to a country property because someone was critically injured or sick, uh, and uh, they would charter an aeroplane. Uh, so we did a lot of that. And um, uh, in between times and at weekends, um, I'd uh, sometimes take a moth off to, together with my sole member of my staff, Tom Young, who was my engineer, and uh, we'd go off to country centres barnstorming and making a few pounds. Um, I remember on one occasion after been going some time that uh, Hudson Fish wrote me a letter, which I have somewhere, uh, telling me that the financial record showed that the, the very satisfactory result that the Brisbane branch had made £45 that month. So it was uh, very marginal and every pound counted. On one occasion I took one down and landed on the beach at low tide down at uh, Gatta, about um, 50 miles south of Brisbane on the coast, and at low tide, I did joy rides off the beach, a pound a time, up and around, four minutes, and another one. And uh, at high tide, well, we just uh, hauled, my engineer and I hauled the aeroplane up onto the dry sand to get it out of the high tide, and we then we went surfing ourselves. But at low tide, back we went to the beach for more joy rides. We took 200 pounds between Christmas and New Year, which was uh, quite a uh, significant contribution to the viability of Brisbane Branch. Um, I found that I was Brisbane branch manager. I was um, chief and chief flying instructor. Um, I was chief office factotum. I was uh, sales manager for the uh, new moth enterprises. You see, selling them to private owners. At that time, you could buy a moth uh, for six hundred and fifty pounds, and uh, a cattle dealer came into the office uh, there at Brisbane. Uh, and said, well, uh, he, uh, uh, he reckoned that he could, he'd like a, a little aeroplane to uh, fly himself round on his deals, cattle dealing. Um, but um, 
he'd like me to fly him, and I told him that that was impossible to commit my, uh, myself to that, because, uh, but I would when I could. Uh, so we did a deal that I would take him on a certain flight uh, a week hence, and with that he put his hand in his hip pocket, hauled out a roll of notes, peeled off 650, and paid for the aeroplane, put the rest back in his hip pocket. So you can imagine that he, he, he was a wheeler-dealer on them when it came to cattle. But we were very good friends, and uh, he uh, uh, then later employed a pilot and uh, made quite a success of this running around the country uh, wheeling and dealing in cattle. The flying of uh, doctors' medical supplies, was this the beginning of the flying doctor service as it became? Uh, well, uh, what I have said in Brisbane was not uh, really the beginning of the flying doctor. Uh, what really was was out in the far west in Cloncurry, uh, we frequently had occasion. Someone fell off a windmill and had a compound leg fracture. Well, we'd, uh, they'd, um, uh, particularly in the wet weather when a land uh, a car ambulance couldn't get out, they'd uh, appeal for a, an aeroplane and uh, uh, similarly for people who were critically ill for one cause or another. And uh, we did a lot of these flights uh, for medical reasons in the West. Um, at that time, a famous character, the Reverend John Flynn, was head of the Australian Inland Mission, the Methodist Australian Inland Mission, very dedicated man to the outback, and uh, seeing this going on, he conceived that this should be increased and developed. And uh, so uh, he, uh, this led on to the uh, formation of the uh, AIM, the Australian Inland Mission uh, Medical Services, which became the Royal Flying Doctor Service later. Did you have much contact, Captain Brain, with the record-breakers of those days? Oh, yes. I, I guess the uh, the first one that you'd come under that category would be Alan Cobham. And I was in Cloncurry when uh, he flew out in a DH-50. Um, and I got to know him as he came through Cloncurry. Um, it was the era of uh, that the public and the press were ripe for these people, these adventurers, uh, really. Um, in some ways they were more uh, adventurers than they were pioneers or, or trailblazers, uh, a term which in my own mind I've always disputed for a lot of these flights. Um, a pioneer and a trailblazer, according to the genesis of the term, was... Uh, a bushman like in America who found a way across to the west coast and who blazed uh, a piece off a tree with an axe so that other people could follow his his trail. Well, that can scarcely be applied to uh, people who came in the era they did, who merely uh, were brave adventurers. Uh, and they did first flights, but uh, on most occasions they did absolutely nothing uh, towards blazing a trail. Um, I was in Brisbane when Hinkler arrived. Uh, he landed on the... Uh, there was an aerodrome nearby, but uh, for public reasons, he landed on the, right nearby on the Ascot racecourse, on, on the straight where the horses go, because it had grandstands for all the people to be, and my Lord, there was a turnout. They were... People were thick, and... Um, I happened, uh, the press, of course, wanted photographs of all this. And so in a little moth, I took up a press photographer in one of the little machines we use for flying instruction. And uh, he was very good. I'd had him up before. 
And we were flying over the race course as Hinkler arrived, and he was busy photographing the uh, the crowds, tens of thousands of them. The streets and everything were jammed, and um, and the actual arrival of Hinkler landing on the straight. Well, we just flew over at about, I suppose, 200 feet over the race course, and he got his photographs of Hinkler and was taking another one of the crowd coming in the race course gates when the engine cut out. Just as suddenly as that. So uh, 200 feet, and uh, I looked around and uh, decided that, well, you couldn't land in, into a mass of people, and uh, the only thing was to try and do a, a quick about turn and try and scramble in onto the race course straight, which I just managed to do with uh, no engine. And um, then I was, uh, of course, naturally anxious, having got on the ground, to see well, why the devil had the engine cut out. Well, uh, it didn't take me long to see that. Uh, the master switches, which were outside the cockpit of the front where the instructor normally sat, uh, had been turned off. And inadvertently, of course, the photographer hanging over the side with his camera had caught the cuff of his coat and just turned off the switches, switched the engine on. So that was that. Um, Hinkler, I might add, was... Uh, just a few hundred yards back along the, f the fairway, he saw this happen. He heard the engine cut out and he watched it. And at dinner, the, they had a dinner for him at the hotel that night and I met him there and uh, he said, oh, so you were the one that had in that one with the engine cut out. And I said, uh, uh, yes, I was. And told him what had happened. He said, very nice bit of work, very nice bit of work. <laughs> I said, well, thank you very much. It was just possible and I was very lucky to make it. Um, or well, later on, I had... Uh, at the flying school was one of my instructors, Charles Scott, who uh, left Qantas to go in for record breaking. Uh, I was in Brisbane when uh, Kingsford Smith and um, Ulm uh, did their first flight round Australia at the commencement of their uh, flights, or their famous flights, to be followed shortly afterwards by Kingsford Smith's friend and contemporary, um, uh, Anderson. Uh, and uh, his engineer Hitchcock, who uh, followed round Australia, or no, I think they came first, and Kingsford Smith and Ulm second. Well, I got to know them all then. I hadn't known them previously, although while I was paddling up and down Western Queensland regularly with Qantas, Kingsford Smith had been doing exactly the same job over in Western Australia. But that was the first time I met him, and I met him, of course, on many occasions afterwards. Um, it was in uh, 19... I was flying around with a photographer when Kingsford Smith arrived from on his Pacific flight. The press, of course, wanted photographs, and so I, I guess I was the first to spot him as he came in heading for Brisbane with my photographer. Um, a year later, uh, Kingsford Smith, as we all know, went missing in northwest Australia, and there was a great... Uh, a search and hue and cry for him, and he landed in an isolated part of the northwest of Western Australia, and uh, at a place which Alm dubbed um, Coffee Royal. But anyhow, uh, uh, his old friend who'd done round Australia flights, uh, Anderson, Captain Anderson, and and Hitchcock uh, went uh, out to search for him, and uh, they in turn went missing. Um, the, uh, immediately the Air Force sent up uh, four or five DH-9As to make a search for Anderson and Hitchcock. And they started off from where he'd departed from at Alice Springs. 
Um, but after five days of search, they they hadn't uh, found anything, and uh, the powers that be, I think supported by either the Shell Company or Castor Oil, decided they'd charter a Qantas plane uh, to join in the search, and so I was instructed to um, fly out and uh, join the IAAF planes in the search up from Alice Springs end. But what they didn't know was that... Um, that was in 1929. In 1925, I'd been out over the particular country where um, Anderson and Hitchcock were missing, desert country, um, on a, a gold search expedition with one of these chaps, you know, who had a secret story about gold at latitude, so-and-so, longitude, something else. And I knew this particular uninhabited, what we call high desert country, quite well. And I, uh, I knew that uh, it was so dry at that period of the year that even the Aboriginals wouldn't be there. And uh, I, uh, through this knowledge, I calculated that if they'd ever reached uh, a certain line, they would have been seen by the Aboriginals who, uh, through habit, would have told the white man and they'd have known that an aeroplane passed over at a certain time. And since no such news had come in, I figured that they'd never reached that line and that if the Air Force were already for four to five days combing in the area from the south, uh, I uh, requested the authorities' permission to go on my own to the other end and search back from that line. And um, the, uh, I got out there in a day and a bit, and um, I uh, was heading from Newcastle Waters to uh, Wave Hill property across the desert country and keeping a sharp lookout, and uh, I, about 50, 60 miles away... Uh, on my port side, I, I saw a faint bit of smoke, which um, would be no more than would rise from a cigarette across the far side of the room. And uh, I realised that uh, that was an area where there were no Aboriginals because it was too dry. And um, uh, there was nothing that really should cause a smoke there. And I decided I'd go and look, so I altered course and went there, and I found the uh, uh, the little kookaburra aeroplane uh, sitting in desert country among the spinifex. And I flew down low, and I could see one body under the wing, which had been dead some days, quite obviously, because the man's face had, was blackened, you see. Uh, and uh, I was down, you know, to 40 feet, say, as I flew over. And I couldn't find the other one. Uh, I didn't know who, which who was who. Uh, I couldn't detect that. But I couldn't find the other body anywhere, although I was afraid it wouldn't be far away. But just in case, I threw overboard bottles of water and tins of food in case, through some miracle, he saw my aeroplane flying around and came back to the wrecked aeroplane or to the damaged aeroplane and uh, uh, looking for anything that I might have dropped. You would have found water and canned food, but... Uh, so I went in then on to uh, Wave Hill, and uh, uh, by radio from Wave Hill we advised the powers that be that we'd located the aircraft, one man dead under the wing, and uh, 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 I suggested that the uh, Air Force four aeroplanes that were down the Alice Springs end should uh, come up and join me next morning and we'd make a close search to see if we could see any sign of the other body. And they did that, and I met them at Newcastle Waters, and we flew out together and scoured all around, but we couldn't see the other body, so we went to onto Wave Hill, and uh, then I was recalled to Brisbane. And um, the uh, powers that be decided that uh, the Air Force officer, Flight Lieutenant Eaton, 
whose nickname naturally was Moth, Moth Eaton, uh, that he should take charge of a ground party with camels and black trackers and uh, uh, go out from Wave Hill and, and uh, trace down the other person, which they did and found that uh, only 200 yards away, under a stunted bit of scrub, the other man was dead, also of thirst. It was a, one of those things that was really a shocking case of people literally perishing for thirst. Well, um, I got back to Brisbane, and lo and behold, it was only about six weeks later that um, Moyer and Owen, who were flying a Vickers Velour freighter out from England, left Coping to come to Darwin, and that's the last they heard. And um, so they uh, didn't know whether they'd gone in the sea or, or what, but the odds seemed to be that maybe they went in the ocean. Um, there was a private... Uh, aeroplane up there at the time, the Honourable Hugh Grosvenor, I think it was, had a private aeroplane and he did some searching round. Anyhow, after five days, the powers that be, uh, supported by the oil companies or Castrol, I forget, or both, uh, decided that they'd uh, get Qantas to send a plane out to search and uh, Hudson Fish decided that, well, uh, I should take it out. So I headed off up to Darwin after they'd been missing five days and... Um, I figured that, uh, well, look, if they'd gone in the sea five days ago, well, there wasn't anything I could do about it. There were 600 miles of sea. But um, if they'd turned back to the time or coast, well, there was nothing that I could do about it. My aeroplane couldn't get 600 miles without refueling. And that um, the only thing to do was to see if they had perhaps reached the Australian coastline uh, and crashed somewhere in isolation. It was all isolated, so I... I got to Darwin and I planned a, a trip on the map that I'd go round a course to the northeast over Arnhem Land and come come back along the coast and have a close look at it all to see if they perhaps made it. And lo and behold, I got back as far as the Cape Don Lighthouse on the tip of Arnhem Land on the northwest corner of Arnhem Land, an isolated lighthouse, no telephone, no radio in those days. Um, a supply ship came in once every six months with food and that was it. But uh, as I got to where this lighthouse was, I could see the wreckage of the Vickersville or among the stumps near the lighthouse. So the thing then was to uh, communicate with these people. They had no radio. I couldn't land anywhere. There was nowhere where I could touch down. So I'd anticipated possibly such a situation from my experience, and I carried in the cockpit with me a few stones and bits of paper. So I wrote on one bit of paper a uh, question... Uh, are Moyer and Owen uh, with you? Uh, and uh, are they... I knew they'd be with them because the wreckage was there. Uh, and are they alive? Uh, uh, if yes, put out one white sheet on the ground thus. If no, uh, if they're dead, put out two white sheets thus. Uh, I flew down low and dropped this bit of paper with a stone in it. I could see the people rush out and pick it up, read it, run inside the lighthouse residence and come out and put out one white sheet. Well, that was my first question answered. Yes, they, they were alive. So um, the second thing then, I thought, well, what do I do now? So I wrote another note, and similarly on a stone, flew down low and dropped it. Um, uh, are they uh, in uh, need of uh, medical attention? Uh, and uh, you need a doctor? Uh, if yes, one white sheet, no, two white sheets, well, immediately they put out one white sheet. So they had been injured and they were in need of medical attention. Um, then the third thing occurred to me that possibly they may have got off on a boat and be heading on their way to Darwin. So I said, well, 
Are they still with you, and, and or do you want me? And do you want me to arrange a boat to pick them up? Yes, one way cheat, and again I got the answer yes. So they wanted me to uh, arrange a boat to pick them up. So I flew back to Darwin and uh, arranged uh, for a, a boat to go to this lighthouse point at Cape Don, and uh, and uh, pick them up, which it did, and brought them into Darwin. And in the upshot, I flew them then back to Sydney. You said earlier, Captain Brain, that you felt that there was a, quite a distinction between uh, the record breakers and the trailblazers. Who, in your opinion, were the trailblazers of Australian aviation? Well, uh, when you say aviation, uh, I'd prefer to restrict that to the trailblazers of uh, civil commercial aviation. Uh, now, uh, as I said at your earlier question, uh, merely flying the first flight or a record flight between two points, uh, boring holes in the atmosphere which no one else could follow, doing uh, nothing uh, really to establish any new information about it, uh, was uh, highly courageous, adventurous, uh, but it wasn't trailblazing. They didn't leave marks or help anyone else to follow them. Whether they did the progress of commercial aviation and uh, uh, encouraging people to fly is debatable. I think the enormous publicity that these people got for being daring heroes was uh, probably frightened as many people away from flying as as, uh, as it uh, would encourage. And now, the trailblazers were those uh, of commercial civil aviation, were those who who established facilities and techniques and, and the wherewithal uh, of uh, for other people to follow along those routes and increase their knowledge of it, and among the therefore you've got to spread the credit for trailblazing over a wide field, including governments who, who uh, or private individuals who contributed to building a landing strip somewhere, to the authorities that uh, put up a, a radio a communication at, at that point. Uh, to the meteorological people who uh, established meteorological aviation centres, which were of great value, and uh, also to people like Qantas collectively, uh, not one individual, but to the to all the individuals connected with the people like Qantas, who, in my opinion, did a, a marvellous bit of trailblazing in Western Queensland and subsequently overseas. I think you might even take it to uh, some other things. Now, in 1934, when Qantas commenced the operations with the DH-86 from Australia to Singapore, uh, there was no such thing in Australia as a load sheet. We, 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 there was a regulation that the gross weight of an aeroplane mustn't exceed a certain amount, but there was no such thing as a load sheet. Well, with this DH-86 being a different sort of aeroplane, uh, critical on, on its maximum load and uh, critical on its uh, centre of gravity, the, uh, I felt the, there was a need for a formal load sheet that set these things down before the plane departed from each stop. And so uh, I um, uh, drafted one. We Qantas had it printed. And, um, uh, well, less than a year later, Department of Civil Aviation officials came along and had a look at this and thought, that's a very good idea, and so they made it uh, obligatory uh, and published load sheets which were an exact copy of the ones that we were using. Uh, also, 
1934, at the commencement of the H-86 operations overseas, I felt the, the real need for a, an operations manual that for all the pilots they must have details of the aerodromes, of the radio facilities available, and of uh, technical aspects of the loading, uh, and uh, a multitude of other things. And I produced a, what I termed an operations manual, which set out the radio aids, the airport facilities, size of the aerodromes, etc., and a lot of uh, other uh, such information. Now, there again, the Department of Civil Aviation uh, came along and saw this and thought that's a very good idea. And so they made uh, an operations manual uh, obligatory and a requirement under the Civil Aviation regulations. Well, those things, I think, are trailblazing in their way. They really are blazing a trail that's, uh, that will help others to follow. Um, as a, an item again... In 1938, when we commenced um, flying the uh, flying boats up to Singapore, the crew then came to consist of a captain and first officer, the um, plus a radio operator, first-class radio operator, professional, uh, plus a purser and one steward. Now, this was the first time that we'd had a first-class professional radio officer just purely as such. And I was intrigued to find that uh, he was so good, he really was good, a chap named Freddie Stevens. And um, on the way up through the Indies, uh, he'd be able to turn around and tell me the latest world news broadcast by whatever the newspaper authorities are who bro broadcast this in Morse code at a terrific rate, uh, which he was able to pick up despite the static and tell me the things, you know, so-and-so has been invaded, this, this is world news. So uh, I uh, said, well, uh, where do you get that from? And he told me that this was part of an international service to shipping. And I thought, to hell with that. If the ships can get it, uh, so can we. So uh, I uh, uh, saw the radio authorities, Amalgamated Wireless in Australia, who were in charge of, as far as Australia was concerned, of this world news to shipping, and said, well, now, look, uh, what about we, we, we can get this and we can get our news to our passengers in flight? And they wanted to charge me a fee as they did a ship. They, apparently they had a fee, so many hundred pounds, for a certain ship to be allowed to use this. But I said, you can't do that because we've got a whole multitude of, of aeroplanes. So what we want is just a... We're prepared to pay a minor fee to cover all our aeroplanes flying between... Australia and Singapore. And I did a deal with them, and after that I had printed a cover, the news in flight, world news in flight, and we, uh, uh, the radio operator got it. He submitted it to me for editing and censoring because uh, I eliminated any uh, information about the latest tragic air disaster or anything of that sort from it. But the rest of the news, once it had passed, once I'd sent it, censored it, it went down to the purser, who had a typewriter, and he put a couple of carbons in, and he typed this news out on sheets, which were then inserted into a, a, an already printed cover and stapled with a stapling machine, and we handed the newspaper out to people in flight. Now, that would have been in 1938 or early 39, and I, I think that that's the probably the first time in the world 
that uh, a newspaper was actually edited and published and printed in flight. And uh, where, in days gone by, we used to fly up through Surabaya, and when we got there, the agent would meet us, and we'd ask him, you know, what the news of the world was going on, and he'd tell us. Uh, the situation changed. He used to come down to us and say, well, what's the latest news? Because uh, we'd have it quicker than the local newspapers in Java could print it. And uh, we used to give him the, the latest news. You mentioned the start of the DH-86 services between Australia and Singapore, which, of course, were linking up with the first Imperial Airways services through to Australia, uh, beginning in December 1934. Now, you uh, were in charge of the first delivery flight of a DH-86 from England to Australia. Can you tell me the background to this? Um, well, by this time, of course, Qantas had uh, done a 50-50 merger deal with Imperial Airways and formed uh, Qantas Empire Airways. Um, at the outset of these overseas operations. Um, Imperial Airways, uh, and they'd got the contract on the basis of the DH-86, a new four-engine biplane. Um, I was sent over by the company to England to um, uh, take delivery of the first aeroplane for us uh, and uh, to fly it back to Australia. Uh, when I got over there, the Imperial Airways had taken delivery <coughs> of their first aeroplane but still hadn't put it into operation. Now, the DH-86 at that time was built with a nose like a dragon. There was only uh, provision for one pilot. This, uh, I felt, was uh, little use to us. That might be all right to fly London, Paris and back, but uh, with us, where we uh, flew four days uh, consecutively uh, to Singapore... And uh, I felt that uh, we had to have a dual control where the captain and first officer uh, could alternate in, in doing the flying. And this idea that the captain got out of his seat and the first officer who had been sitting in the passenger cabin sidled in and took over in the air was not good enough. So uh, I <coughs> told Imperial Airways and de Havilland's that and they said, well, I mean, that wasn't the way the aeroplane was built and uh, what was more, if they had to redesign it and was going to add another month, two months uh, onto the delivery time and um, uh, moreover we must expect that we'd lose four to six miles an hour in speed, a penalty and I still insisted and uh, Imperial Airways, Woods Humphrey and, uh, and Brackley and uh, the de Havilland people demurred so I sent a cable to Hudson Fish in Australia and said that I felt quite definitely that we, for our purposes we must have proper dual control. And he cabled back saying that so so be it, that, that, that we must have it. So in the result, uh, I waited while they designed to put a snout onto the aeroplane and uh, put in side-by-side side proper dual control. And we then tested the aeroplane out and found that instead of losing four to six miles an hour, we gained five miles an hour faster than the one with a single dragon-like nose. Um, I might mention uh, that... Uh, I felt quite like uh, the small brother from the colonies uh, compared with these other people. I'd never flown anything except open cockpit, cap and goggles, single-engined aeroplanes. And the first aeroplane I ever sat inside a closed cockpit or had more than one engine was the DH-86. So that um, in offering an opinion uh, against people who were used to flying four-engined aircraft and particularly Captain Hubert Broad, who was the chief test pilot of, of de Havilland's, uh, famous in England, 
and um, uh, I criticised the aeroplane from the outset for being directionally unstable, that the undercarriage was um, too severe, I think it was a doughty undercarriage but not a, uh, an oleo uh, type leg, it was just a, had a wedge in it and some rubber balls and it was as lively as a cat on hot bricks and I felt that, uh, well, the exceptional pilot could fly it and keep out of trouble but that no aeroplane should be put into commercial service that was only fit to be flied by, flown by exceptional pilots. It had to get past the average good airline pilot. And uh, so, uh, moreover, this, this thing with its uh, small, tapered, thin, stick-and-fabric wings, um, it had a, um, a very flat gliding angle and um, since we in Australia had to get into some of our aerodromes like Newcastle Waters, it was only 600 yards square with a fence around it. And even angling across it, you could get 700 yards. But 700 yards wasn't much under hot conditions with fluky winds and uh, a density altitude effect due to the heat of 4,000 feet. And um, I said that, well, uh, I wanted the aeroplane fitted with... Um, uh, well, air brakes to steepen the glide and uh, and shorten the the deceleration period. Uh, even just struts that turn sideways, like they had in the Puss Moth. Uh, and uh, the Havilland said, "Oh well, of course, uh, 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 this is going to mean more delay and more design. And uh, the time is getting near now. The aeroplane's almost ready for you to fly to Australia. Are you prepared to fly it out without this?" I said, "Yes, providing that you." produce some flaps or air brakes uh, and we put them on before uh, we uh, uh, before long so uh, with that promise I um, I flew the first aeroplane out and uh, uh, got it to Brisbane quite okay but um, uh, the later on the Havilland produced uh, some uh, flaps in the upper wings which are pumped down with a hydraulic pump handle and um, uh, this had the desired effect. And was, these things were fitted, the dual control, uh, this flap to steep and the glide in, were fitted to all aeroplanes built subsequently. And the, um, the particular lively characteristics of the undercarriage were attended to and the wedge uh, shapes were uh, modified to give a better result. And um, I had told uh, Woods Humphrey these things about that I thought about the aeroplane, that it wasn't really suitable for average use. And um, uh, he was very nice, Woods Humphrey, but he, he had his air superintendent, Major Brackley, who was much more experienced on big aircraft than I was. And he had uh, Captain Hubert Broad, the famous test pilot, uh, saying that it was quite all right. So it happened you know, while I was in England that their first one was due to fly from London to Paris, and it was faster than the old um, uh, Heracles uh, big uh, Handley Page machines, and they had the Minister for Transport or whatever it was, he was going to be on the first flight and there was much um, to do about it. Well then they decided, well, which pilot was going to fly it, so they um, got hold of Captain Wilcoxon, who was one of their top senior boys in those days, and they said, well, look, you better pop out to... Uh, to Essendon this afternoon, to Croydon, I mean, this afternoon, and uh, do some circuits and bumps in it so that you can get it endorsed on your pilot's license. 
So Wilcoxon went out and did two landings in it and put it back in the hangar and said he wasn't taking it to Paris or anywhere else until they did something about the uh, this, this uh, lively undercarriage uh, trouble. So um, <laughs> in the upshot, the, the minister wasn't flown next day to Paris on this new aeroplane. He was quietly taken over in a, an argosy or something else. And the following day, uh, I got a ring from Woods Humphrey, and uh, he asked me to come into his office, and he looked at me, he said, you know, Brian, he said, uh, I I was uh, really astonished the other day when you said that this wasn't satisfactory the way it was. And he said, I spoke with Brackley, and he told me that he felt it was okay, and uh, Hubert Broad said it was okay, but uh, he said, uh, Wilcoxon, he just uh, did this, and that's that, so you were right. Now, you said that the flight to... Been, uh, back to Brisbane with the DH-86 uh, went off uh, successfully, but I believe there was one little bit of trouble as you were coming over the Mediterranean. Uh, yes, well, uh, in due course, the DH-86 with dual control, a la Qantas, uh, was completed and uh, the, uh, the Havilland and Imperial Airways uh, big brothers uh, loaded the airplane up almost to its maximum uh, with a spare engine in the cabin and spare wheels and tyres in the back and spare magnetos and everything that they could uh, put in within the weight limits because we were going 12,000 miles away and, and uh, you know, wanted to keep operating. And uh, so uh, I was told, right, she'll be all loaded and ready for you to depart from Croydon Airport and tomorrow morning. So out I went and uh, had a look around and uh, they produced uh, something to say that everything was on board and loaded according to instructions uh, by de Havilland. And um, so I went and, and uh, proceeded and we got going. I had a first officer named Price who was loaned to me by Imperial Airways and a flight engineer loaned uh, to me by Imperial Airways named Pink. Um, well, I took off at Croydon Airport, and I had great trouble getting the tail up in the takeoff, and I'd already wound the adjustable tailplane fairly well forward, and I continued during the takeoff to wind it fully forward. And I still had great trouble getting the tail up, and once I was in flight and got a bit of speed, I found that uh, even that wasn't enough, that uh, the thing was t- still tail-heavy, um, to the extent that uh, I had to keep two hands on the steering column and, and keep a pressure forward. There was no other way to it. Well, I didn't want to turn back and reload the darn thing, so off we went. And um, our first stop was at Lyon in France. And uh, when I got there, I knew what I was going to do. I immediately, uh, while we were refueling, I took a lot of the things out of the rear uh, luggage locker and uh, proceeded to get a ladder and put them in the nose locker and get the thing so that it wasn't so tail-heavy. And even doing that, I got up to about the maximum that I was supposed to put in the nose locker. But what with the engine in the cabin and the remainder of the stuff in the rear locker, uh, it was uh, in a condition where, uh, while uh, it would fly, you could adjust the tailplane wheel fully forward and it would fly then hands off. You didn't have to keep strong pressure forward on the stick, but the thing was still uh, uncomfortably tail-heavy. But uh, we went on that way. Well, we we uh, left Lyon and we went to Marseille and then we went to Rome Airport and uh, then to Catania in Sicily 
and then to Benghazi, and I spent the night at Benghazi Airport in North Africa as the guest in the mess of the Italian Air Force, uh, with a picture of King Victor Emmanuel at one end of the mess and a picture of Mussolini at the other. I couldn't help thinking at the time, as I looked at this, and having done some time in a, an Air Force mess in Australia, well, you never know, one of these days, instead of being there on a guest at this mess, I thought we might be fighting them, who knows. But anyhow, next morning, uh, we it was a lovely morning, and uh, we left Benghazi to, next stop was to be Mersa True, on the borders of Egypt and whatever it is, Libya or whatever comes next. Uh, the big Air Force aerodrome at Mersa True. And uh, about uh, 20 minutes out, after all the hullabaloo of uh, getting going and that, the weather was perfect. We were flying at about 4,000 feet. There wasn't a bump. Visibility unlimited, and I could look over to the left and see the blue waters of the Mediterranean. We were passing just south of Tobruk. Um, so I thought, well, this was an appropriate time at that uh, hour of the morning, uh, as it happened, to uh, go and powder my nose and try the the, uh, the very aft compartment. So I did that, and uh, but because the thing was already tail heavy. Uh, my moving back would make it so much more tail-heavy that I made the flight engineer Pink sit in my captain's seat to keep the bit more weight in the nose. Um, as I came out and everything was all fine, there was a little jump seat, a folding seat near the door, which was the twelfth seat, I think it was. But I'd never tried it before, and the thing was brand new, so I uh, thought, well, i let it down and try that to see if it's comfortable enough to be a twelfth seat, which... I sat on it and decided it was, and then uh, while I was sitting there, the the aeroplane did a bit of a yaw to the left and a bit of a yaw to the right. Well, uh, I thought, oh, well, Pink, who's also who's flying it, he's also the radio operator and he's keeping a radio schedule with somebody. He's a little inattentive, so not to worry. Uh, but a moment or two later, the thing did a more severe yaw to the left, and then a very severe one to the right, and then an even more severe one to the left, and the luggage came tumbling out of the hat racks and fell all down in the middle of the cabin, and I thought, my God, this is, uh, I know what this is, this is this directional instability that I'd already uh, detected in the aircraft, and I thought Price has been a little inattentive, and, and uh, the damn thing was nearly into a flat spin, so I jumped up and clawed my way down the, the passageway and pulled the cockpit door open, and I never saw two more frightened people in my life, Pink and, and uh, Price, virtually their hair on end, and I got Pink out of my seat, quick six, and got into it, and dropped the nose and got it uh, under control, by which time we'd uh, lost, I suppose, uh, a good part of our uh, 4,000 feet altitude. We'd uh, well, perhaps down to 1,000 feet. And um, I then turned to Price and said, well, what happened? Were you, uh, the thing getting away from you? Oh, no, sir, he said, there's something wrong with the controls. He said, there's something gone wrong with the tailplane, and uh, there's no doubt about it. I said, oh, I think you just let it get... No, 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 he was definite that the, uh, the thing, something was gone wrong with the tailplane. Well, we had had a case in, in uh, England before I left of one of the RAF wires under the tailplane breaking, and... Uh, I thought, well, perhaps it has broken. It's a new aeroplane, very new, and this may be uh, possibly a cause of the trouble. So I, I sent Pink, the engineer, back to 
lie on the floor and poke his head out the door and look under the tailplane, uh, look under, he could see under the tailplane from there to see if there was anything flapping around or broken bracing wires, which there weren't, he said. So I uh, thought, well, anyhow, uh, it's a new aeroplane, anything might happen, and the, if it does happen, well, the safest and chance of survival is to be flying at about ten feet above that lovely, calm, blue Mediterranean, and not further from the coast than I can swim, in case uh, of necessity. So I did that, and having got down there, I thought, well, things are a bit safer now, and uh, I asked uh, Price again about uh, the thing, and... Uh, he still insisted, no, there was something wrong, so I tried the various controls and got a bit braver, and everything seemed to react to me as I had expected it to react from my flying of it around the test flying around Hatfield Airport. And we went on to uh, Mercer Matru Airport, and uh, there I thought, well, perhaps if there's anything wrong when I land, something's going to collapse. So it was a huge airport, and I switched off, turned off the petrol and switched off the four engines and did a dead stick landing on one of these huge runways and when it came to a halt we got out gratefully and nothing happened and smoked a cigarette and went round to the tail and shook the fin and the rudder and the tailplane to see if there was anything possibly loose but no nothing so there it was it was just the flying qualities of the aeroplane and this inherent uh, directional instability and the fact that it was worse when you were loaded near your tail-heavy limits. So we refuelled and went on to Cairo and, and so on uh, out to Australia. Uh, when I got to um, uh, Calcutta, I was held up there for a day because of torrential rains in Calcutta and the Bay of Bengal, and uh, I was held up for two days, and uh, I was very annoyed about that, naturally. We weren't trying to break any record, but I wanted to get on with the delivery flight, so uh, we got a slightly better uh, radio report, and so I set sail across for Akiab and uh, left Calcutta, and uh, we weren't out more than about uh, 80 miles before the, there was lightning and big dark clouds here and dark clouds there. We got a bit further, the lightning became more frequent around in front of us and the clouds more concentrated and the next moment we were into it. Oh, a beautiful line squall. And the radio static was so bad that you couldn't get anything intelligible on the radio except crackle, crackle, crackle. Well, I might say that uh, instruments lying I was not used to. I'd only done a bit uh, during the, my time in England. And we did have artificial horizon on this aeroplane, which we'd never had before, and turn and bank indicator. So uh, on the little training I'd done on that, I concentrated very hard while I, I flew a few hundred feet over the Bay of Bengal and wasn't enjoying it the least bit. I, I couldn't even see the inner engine looking out the cockpit. The rain was so heavy. But uh, suddenly we came out of it and we were in the clear. And then the static disappeared, and the first radio message we got was warning to all aircraft, lines, call, east of... I thought, well, that's fine, telling me now that I've just gone through it. <laughs> well, we arrived at Akiab, and they'd had, I suppose, five inches of rain, and I flew over Akiab. I'd been there before on these flights going over to England, and uh, there was the aerodrome, but the, the runways were submerged. And um, so I... Uh, flew around and I could see, you know, the, where the runway was and uh, uh, I'm not sure it was Akiab, it may have been Alistar. 
And uh, I could see where the runway was, and the weather was crook, and it was getting late in the day, and well, there it was. So we had to come in and land on a runway that was six inches, I guess, underwater. And um, so we uh, landed there with a, quite a, a splash. Water went over the windscreen and blocked out everything for the moment, but we came to a quick halt and um, then got out. When we got out and had a look, there's all the fabric on the underside of the fuselage all dangling down in the water because the gush of water coming up had ripped all the fabric all along the belly of the aircraft. So there we were for two days. It never stopped raining for two days. Not a chance to do anything. At the end of the third day, the sun came out, so we rushed down with a pot of dope and some fabric and... Uh, we, the engineer put a great patch underneath the, where this fabric had no other damage done. And we got going again while we duly uh, made a trouble-free uh, trip through to Brisbane. Well, that was that. Well, now my old friend who'd flown the Astria out on one of the earlier survey flights, uh, Captain Prendergast, very experienced old uh, Imperial Airways pilot, uh, he, he was to fly the second aeroplane out, uh, following me. They were going to fly these two out, and that was enough to get started, and we'd get the others into service as things progressed from Singapore. And um, so he was coming three weeks later with an identical aircraft, identically lo loaded with a um, spare engine in the cabin and these other things. And... Um, uh, he was due and came the day that he was due to arrive. He'd got to Longreach. He left Longreach in the morning at six o'clock and it was a beautiful morning and suddenly we got a message in Brisbane to say that he'd crashed and they were all killed uh, only 40 miles out of Longreach on a beautiful morning. No bumps, no cloud, no weather, no n nothing. And... Uh, uh, yet he'd, uh, he'd plunged into the ground and they were, they were things. So Arthur Baird and I... In Brisbane, of course, uh, it was our responsibility. I was in charge of flying ops, he of engineering, and so we uh, hopped into a puss moth and flew him out and we landed alongside the wrecked aeroplane to see what had happened. And um, it was extraordinary. We were able, some people from a few miles away at a, a sheep property came across when they saw us land and they'd seen the aeroplane and seen, seen it get into a big flat spin and seen it get its nose down and and and, and uh, straightened out and stopped spinning, but it just disappeared below the trees and then there was a cloud of dust. So I got that story. By this time the bodies had been removed by a, a party sent out, police and a doctor from Longreach. And uh, I I'd thought about this there and I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, that's nearly what happened to me just north or south of Tobruk. Now... Uh, it, it's a, almost a carbon copy of what could have happened to me. And if, if, if my guess is right, then Prendergast did what I did. On a beautiful morning, 20 minutes out of Longreach, he decided he'd go aft and put his engineer up front because it was so tail-heavy. And uh, his first officer getting distracted by keeping a radio schedule, and, and, and this happened, but he didn't get back in time. So uh, I went on into Longreach, and uh, there I saw the the uh, uh, people there, and I said, now, look, tell me, uh, when you found this aeroplane, who was in what seat? Well, they said, well, we don't know who was in what seat. We don't know the people, uh, but you better see the doctor. And so I saw the doctor, and the doctor said, well, he didn't know who was who, but he, he, he could give me a detailed description of the injuries of, of the th three bodies he found. 
and where they were located when he found it. So he proceeded to uh, tell me such and such injuries for the right-hand cockpit seat and such and such injuries for the left-hand cockpit seat. And the third body was found in the rear of the cabin just outside the toilet entrance. Well, to continue, from uh, the description of the injuries of the people in the cockpit and the person uh, who was found at the rear of the cabin, uh, it, uh, I had to then view the bodies, and uh, it wasn't a nice task. But anyhow, I uh, was uh, able to establish that the person in the rear of the cabin who had been killed in the rear of the cabin just outside the washroom door was Captain Prendergast, that Engineer Pink was in his seat, and that uh, the... Uh, not Engineer Pink... That was, uh, but the engineer was in his seat and the first officer was in his proper seat, which was almost a copybook of what had I'd nearly happened to me at, in, in uh, south of Tobruk. And uh, unfortunately, well, since it had all happened, fortunately uh, I was able to establish beyond any reasonable doubt that exactly that was what had happened. Um, I was able to take that a stage further by uh, saying that, well, now, was the first officer, who was also the radio officer, was he distracted by keeping a radio schedule? And I was able to get the logbook from the radio station in Longreach that he had been communicating with them about this and that right up well, just an instant or two before the accident. Was this directional instability in the DH-86 put to rights in the end? Uh, well, as far as Qantas was concerned... We overcame that problem by uh, putting our own regulation out that the, the plane must be loaded in its nose-heavy limitations and uh, by various other uh, techniques uh, in flying it, particularly during the takeoff and landing. Uh, as far as getting over it properly was concerned, in due course the Havilands produced the DH-86B which was the same aeroplane, but with two extra fins on the outside edges of the tailplane, and that aeroplane, I'm told by those who flew it, had none of these directional instability problems at all. Now, in uh, December 1934, you had the first official flight uh, through to London with mail from Australia, from Brisbane, and uh, you actually flew this first flight. Can you give me the background, Captain Brain, to this? Well, by this time, uh, the, these accidents with the DH-86 had caused the Australian Civil Aviation Authorities to su suspend the uh, Certificate of Airworthiness on two occasions. Uh, there was the Pendergast accident when they went herring off after structural failure uh, on a, an abortive uh, hunt, um, and uh, there were two accidents happened in Bass Strait with DH-86s which had been obtained by uh, Holliman's ANA uh, where they'd spun or anyhow crashed into the sea. One they didn't see it spin in, the other one they did see it spin in, which I think were, again, copies of this same problem. Uh, but these, uh, each time these happened, the Civil Aviation Department uh, suspended the Certificate of Airworthiness and uh, Qantas was unable to use them. And uh, one of these suspensions happened just on the eve of when the Duke of Gloucester was to see the first official air mail out. So uh, we had no alternative in Qantas but to uh, make some hasty arrangements and we arranged for a, a DH-86, which was in Singapore, to be flown down to Darwin by Imperial Airways 
because the British authorities had not at that moment grounded the aircraft, and uh, we put our brand new aeroplane with its four engines away in the hangar and used one of our old DH-61s to, um, with a new coat of paint to do the official uh, send-off of the first air mail, the Duke of Gloucester. Uh, now, uh, do, you, do you want me to talk about the Duke of Gloucester? So, uh, after inspecting the aeroplane, there was a big crowd there, and the Duke of Gloucester was up on the platform on a dais for the formal function, and I had to go up and receive from him uh, uh, formally a bag of mail, a small bag of mail, which he handed to me, saying in a quavering voice, and I hand you this bag of mail to take to my brother the king. And I thought, good heavens, I mean, is this the big he-man of the royal family? I mean, this is, this is a shocker. And with that, he put out a limp hand like a cold fish and gave me a limp shake hands. I was horrified, but however, I said, they didn't got on with the job, and off we went. Was this business of the certificate of airworthiness the reason why uh, it was some uh, short while before Qantas could honour its part of the agreement and uh, operate the sector as far as uh, Singapore? Uh, yes, I forget. Uh, that that, uh, that was. Uh, but uh, it didn't last long. I, I uh, From memory, I, I can't uh, recall, but I mean, it was a matter of weeks. And uh, the uh, Department of Civil Aviation, I uh, emphatically and strongly uh, asserted that this was a matter of um, the flying qualities of the aeroplane and the pilot properly trained could cope with the situation and uh, that they had no proof whatever of structural failure. Uh, which was true. And so eventually the um, suspension of the certificate of airworthiness uh, was um, granted and we got on with the job. But I don't think that was long. It was only uh, perhaps a few weeks. Captain Brain, I know that you feel that the episode involving the flying of 19 Catalinas from the United States to Australia uh, is, in your opinion, one of the most memorable Qantas events. Can you give me the background to that flight, that series of flights? Uh, yes, um, the war had started. America was uh, still neutral, but uh, Australia was in it, naturally, uh, at that time, at the end of 1940, and uh, Australia ordered uh, 18 Catalina reconnaissance flying boats from the United States, and the problem was how to get them out. There, there were problems about shipping them out. Uh, there were problems about uh, flying them out to the extent that uh, America was busy with its delivery flights and the Air Force, for whom the 18 Catalinas were purchased, uh, didn't have at that time any long-range flying boat pilots. The most they had were some people who used to fly uh, seagull amphibians around the, or seagull, seagull floats around the old air, uh, aircraft carrier or mo mothership, the Albatross. And uh, uh, therefore, they didn't have any pilots to fly them out themselves, and there was another problem was that uh, Australia was at war and America was neutral, and therefore serving officers of a, of a country at war were not uh, acceptable in, in a neutral country. Uh, and uh, between these two reasons, the powers that be appealed to Qantas to uh, undertake the job of flying these out, which we did as a side issue to our um, flying the route up to Karachi. Um, well, uh, when it came to going over, I decided I'd go over and bring the first one out and set some kind of a pattern for those to follow. And um, in discussing the matter with the Director of Civil Aviation, Captain Johnson, 
he said, well, of course, uh, the American Civil Aviation Authorities uh, might uh, bail up about um, you're not being licensed to fly a Catalina. Well, I hadn't seen one. Uh, so uh, uh, that was a problem that, well, if they were sticky, that could cause trouble and delay. So uh, I came up with the idea. I said, well, now, look, I, I've... Uh, I've already flown Cutty Sarks, Calcutta's, Rangoon's, Empire Flying Boats and things. And why not endorse my pilot's license for all types of multi-engine flying boats? And I said, well, if you're prepared to do that, well, they must accept it. And that, that was done. Um, anyhow, uh, we uh, we finished up. We brought out uh, 19 uh, Catalinas. Uh, I brought out four, but my other Qantas people brought out the balance. They're uh, taking turns. And... Uh, uh, we delivered them all here. The 19th one was one for the RAF in Singapore, and we brought it to Sydney, and uh, they flew it on up to Singapore. Um, this was quite a business, because it was a, a different different aircraft, and when you think of the caution in civil aviation, even by that time, it's um, hilariously irresponsible uh, to uh, send people over who never seen an aeroplane before and expect them to fly it across the Pacific from America to Australia without any proper uh, instruction. But uh, that's what we did. And this was uh, so uh, humorous that we... Uh, uh, the Actually, the first landing I did in control of a, of a, of a Catalina was a night landing at, uh, at an atoll in the Pacific at Canton Island. Uh, at a later date, I think it was Captain Denny who was flying a subsequent aircraft out and... Uh, he was between Honolulu and uh, Canton Island, about 1,800 miles, about halfway, when his petrol flow uh, ceased, and uh, he started to uh, get the engine failure complete. And um, so he called up on the talkie to his engineer, who was up in the centre section of the wing position, and said, well, uh, look, uh, what's, what's the trouble? The engineer said, well, there's a blockage somehow in the fuel flow uh, rec uh, tubes. But he said, there's some way of bypassing it. Well, then he said, well, bypass it. Well, he said, well, I'll have to have a look at the book. And <laughs> with that, he started to thumb through the book to find it, and the aeroplane started to lose height. But fortunately, when it was down to quite a low altitude, he found the appropriate page of the book and how to bypass the flow meters, and uh, he was able to push it, and they were able to get petrol again, and they got on to um, Canton Island. Well, uh, these things, uh, in wartime, uh, I mean, civil flying, you're an old civil pilot, you do the right thing. In wartime, you do your duty as a as a wartime pilot. And, well, you, you take some of these risks you'd never dream of taking in peacetime. On another occasion, bringing one of the later Catalinas out, I think it was the third one I was bringing out, and we were flying through the night from uh, Canton Island to Numea, and... Uh, the weather turned cold, and the uh, cold front was going through, and, uh, well, it was two o'clock in the morning, and the engine suddenly started to splatter, and I could detect immediately that this was icing up in the carburetors. So I, I called up on the uh, thing to the engineer up top, and I said, look, turn on some heat under the carburetors. We're getting icing in the, in the carburetor intakes. And uh, nothing happened for a while, and the engine spluttered, and we were losing height, and we were only about 1,500 feet above the water, and it's the middle of the night, and drizzling rain, and we're flying on instrument. And um, uh, I called him again. I said, turn on the heat! 
And uh, he, he said, well, I, I, I'm just trying to find out how to do that. And he again had to look up the book and, and find which things to, to push to uh, turn on the heat to the carburetors. But fortunately, he found them before we reached the ocean <laughs> and uh, turned it on and the engine, the icing disappeared and on we went. But uh, I think that that, uh, that and many other things like that, that uh, the uh, the Qantas chaps did a marvellous job in they They flew, flew these 19 Catalinas out uh, across the Pacific to Sydney and delivered them all without a scratch on the boy at, uh, at Rose Bay at Sydney and handed them over to the Air Force. And they didn't even steal the chronometer watches or the binoculars.